to Cloud Coffee Talk, AWS edition, sponsored by CloudButton. These are real-world problems, solutions, and thoughtful discussions about working in the cloud. This podcast is for cloud professionals at every level of the organization, from the executive team to those with their hands on the keyboard, putting out fires, and making the world a better place. Just to reiterate, this is an unscripted discussion for those that are passionate about cloud technologies. It's not meant to be beginner level or cloud 101. It's meant to be something hopefully a little bit different. I am Darren Weiner. I am the owner of CloudButton, an independent consulting company focused on AWS Cloud. This week's episode is containers, containers, containers. And my co-presenter joining me on this fun discussion is Eric DeRoyne. Eric, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Hello, everybody. I'm Eric DeRoyne. I'm a site reliability engineer for a company called Training Peaks here in Boulder, well, or Louisville, Colorado, near Boulder. We do training software, coaching software for endurance athletes. All right. And you do a lot with containers. You actually are, aren't you almost entirely on container platform at this point? No, we are mostly on EC2 instances. <laughs> we're we're going to edit that out, Eric. <laughs> you can leave it in. That's fine. I, I think that's actually uh, a good point. So so what are, talk about your experience with containerized platforms on AWS at this point. Sure. So we have a few production systems running in AWS EC. All of our stuff is running ECS Fargate. We have uh, an Nginx reverse proxy that runs a fair amount of traffic for our WWW and marketing sites, uh, sort of directs traffic there for various things. So they're all under our WWW umbrella. Uh, we have a WordPress instance running in there. We have another backend service in there that does some search that integrates with our Elasticsearch and is an API endpoint for integrating with some of our training plan searches. Our tech stack is 20-year-old application. Most of it is um, monolithic-esque that is running on EC2 instances. We started to peel off leaf nodes as we break apart the monolith. And we've actually been doing some interesting stuff in determining whether something should live in Lambda or whether something should live in a containerized service default to trying to put as many things in Lambda as possible, but we've actually found that containerization is a good middle ground on the way to full serverless, right? Our goal and our ideal would be to full serverless. Talk about that a little more. So because sure. that, the, the container and serverless boundary is a really interesting one that a lot of people I think are dealing with. So what is that, what are those criteria? And it's changing like literally almost month by month in terms of the capabilities of serverless versus uh, containers. So what are those boundaries that you're, you're dealing with? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think first of all is like, we are doing it. Arguably both of them are serverless, right? For Fargate in my mind is serverless. Um, it is just containerization. You don't really need to manage any of the server, right? That's the benefit of it. It's not really an AWS managed service, right? It's just, it's running a container serverlessly as in the same way that Lambda runs a function serverlessly, right? Yep. Um, That's an interesting point that I want to get back to later, actually. Yeah, I, I we can talk lots about that. I think that'd be good. For us, it's really a matter of, of how we want to tackle a project. What's the size and scope of it? So certain things are going to be easier to peel off into Lambda functions, Lambda services, right? We really want to think about Lambda as more than just a function, but as a service layer, it's not just going to necessarily be one function. There's going to generally be a few that are working together. You know, you, um, For us, it's what we've moved into Lambda so far has been around um, event-driven processing, mm -hmm. so PubSub stuff. Stuff that's maybe more complicated, that's bigger, that's 
the the ability to move it from directly into Lambda is just going to be way more difficult. It makes more sense to peel that off into a independent decoupled chunk there, right? As we're dealing so with monolithic code, lot, right? A lot of what you're describing is because of your starting point being a monolithic environment, it's just much easier to break that into a containerized environment versus the additional refactoring effort that would be needed to move towards Lambda. hundred percent. Yeah. The first thing we need to do is decouple, right? The, the actual code, the actual interior internal architecture of how dependencies are injected, how libraries are shared, how, you know, that kind of common code is distributed around. So building that and starting to break that apart. There's also things that like, you know, you can't talk about monolithic architecture without talking about a monolithic database, right? So I think anything that interacts with our monolithic database makes a little more sense to leave in a container for now until we can start to break apart the database as well. We were able to do that with some of our event-driven stuff and, and move that into DynamoDB, and that was a good start. But that's also much more limited in scope and what we're able to do that, right? There's lots of interdependencies within our database that becomes much more complicated to break that stuff apart. I think the, um, first of all, I love working I love containers. I love what you can do with them. I love the simplicity. I I came from, you know, I started out in in data centers with, you know, pizza box servers and then of course moved over to EC2 and the amount of management, right? Configuration management, patch management, the TCO associated with with managing large fleets of EC2. It's so nice to have that all go away and not have to think about that and really focus more on, you know, things that are closer to the application. So I'm a big fan of, of containerized environments where there's not a good application, you know, where you can't move it into more of the, the serverless, the Lambda. And that's going to be another great podcast that hopefully is coming up soon. Yeah. Uh, and Lambda, don't get me wrong, Lambda uh, adds in a lot of complexity. In my opinion, well, any, anytime you start breaking things down into more and more microservices, right now you have all these, you know, you need to have some really solid microservice patterns to be successful and where you don't things get complex. But let's let's park that for the next. Sure. Time. Well, I do want to say, though, that the benefit of containerization versus something like Lambda is comes down to why I think containerization is so strong and why I love containerization so much is that your development environment and where you're writing the code and what's being done right on the local developer's machine is essentially what's going to production is we talked last time a little bit about like how, how you can write code without understanding how it runs in production and containerization Docker is it, I was going to say Dockerization was really containerization eliminated that problem. I can specify that on my machine, I'm going to run it in this environment. And I know that when it goes out to production, it's going to run in the same environment. You know, I might be able to throw some more hardware at it, but the configuration of the server, of the internals, of the guts is the same. As long as everyone's working locally in Docker, which can sure. be a real challenge sometimes. I've, yes. I've, I've been, I noticed because like a lot of things in the cloud, a lot of it comes down to culture. And, and that's going to be a theme of a lot of these podcasts of, of the container culture and how you get people moved over there. And some people just, latch on to, to containers, other people don't. And then there are some significant challenges when you're dealing with working with these things locally, right? Yeah, so absolutely. Some of those are technical. So for example, as of right now, 
you were the one I think that talked about the volume mounts, right? And the or performance issues related to volume mounts when you're working locally. So a lot of developers, when they're working locally and they're, they want to iterate very quickly, you don't want to have to rebuild your container every time and redeploy it. Right. So they will do a volume mount locally. Well, if you try to do that on a PC or a Mac versus a Linux OS, there's actually some significant problems with the drivers that create lots and lots of performance issues. And then there's always going to be certain little network issues that show up as well. So there's still some friction associated with working locally that depending on the developers that you're dealing with, those can be a little hard to sort out. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. I think there can be developers who want things to be a certain way and they might have some ideas and they might be different than what my ideas would be or the director of engineering's ideas might be or whatever it is. And that's when it comes down to, I think, an engineering organization needs to come together and either come up with some level of working agreement, come to some level of principles and understanding of, of how we do our work and how we go about doing that. And then we can make determinations from there. I think there's lots of solutions to these to these types of problems. But I think we need to, sh- within the group, within the organization, you need to share those. And you need to understand that. And you need to have some people who are driving whatever your company's decision for best practices of those are and make sure that people are following and adhering to those. Irrespective of that, I think there needs to be an acknowledgement that local container environments just have some technical challenges that you just need to be willing to accept as an organization and be patient with that. Yeah, but I'd say that's true of any local development, right? Like at our company, we have the ability to run everything locally and that is its own challenge and there's own bits and pieces of that. It used to be when I first started there that it would take you two weeks to set up your laptop because you had to build and run and do everything. And slowly but surely we've automated and optimized and now you can do it in you know, an afternoon or whatever, but it still takes a while to get it all set up and that it be standardized and, and configurable for everybody. And then people started using Macs. We were all Windows.net stuff. And then we started having Macs and people were on VMwares and mixing between that, we were able to automate all that. I think anytime you're doing local development, it's going to be tricky. Containerization, I think, to your point, though, adds a whole nother level of complexity on top of that in getting all of those things to work. Like you talk about volume mounts or whatever file system, cross file systems, whatever it could be, versioning between services. And I think that the local dev environment more closely aligning with the higher environments, you know, stage prod is great. For me, I think the huge benefits of once you get it over into the AWS environment of the immutable infrastructures and the replicatable environments. And you're getting exactly, you know, exactly what you're getting. You're running through the same pipelines, same images is, you know, so powerful. I will say though, yeah, is as we're talking about this, that the local development to especially Fargate, um, I've actually found to be pretty difficult, right? It's, it, there is a gap there that that wouldn't not be as significant if you were running it on your own hosted server. In terms of being able to troubleshoot and work in that environment? In that like running the Docker container locally is going to be run through whether it's Docker Compose or, or just CLI or whatever you might be to run that is not entirely, but almost a one-to-one to what the task definition is, but I can't run ECS locally effectively, right? Like I have to go run it in AWS. So to do local development and to know how that will translate over how, how to get my Docker compose file to translate to a task definition is 
knowledge and cognitive load that people need to figure out and understand. There is, there is a, a translation there. There's not everything's created equal, even though they're doing, they're trying to, for instance, right now with the ECS CLI, you can actually convert a Docker Compose to a task definition and drop it into ECS, into AWS environment. But that, that local, that's a challenge with a lot of these, these serverless services, right? Hey, the, the, the local environment doesn't always mimic and there's lots of little band-aids and little additional tools. That challenge is likely going to persist for a while. And I, and I do think the gap's gonna narrow over time. You know, I certainly hope it does because that, yeah. that can be challenging because that can, that can obviously really slow things down. I, I really, as soon as possible, like to get things into the AWS environment and start doing as much testing there as possible. You know, Agreed. In terms of using EC2 versus Fargate-based mm-hmm. ECS, uh, what's your experience there? Uh, I haven't done it personally on EC2 um, outside of like, you know, looking at the docs and just kind of really poking at it at a high level. The benefits of Fargate, in my opinion, are so strong and it's so established that I don't know why you would do it. I mean, I'm sure there's good compliancy reasons for doing it in EC2 reason, but I can't think of any other manage from from at least an operation or management point beyond some sort of security or compliance reason for running it in EC2 in my mind at this point. You can tell me that I'm wrong and I'm super okay with that. No, I, I actually think Fargate ultimately ends up having a smaller blast radius. If you design it correctly, I think it, it makes a lot of sense. I think that the biggest issue I have with Fargate is when things go wrong. So troubleshooting. Can yeah. Really right. You, you have these services that just keep respinning and, could be a number of reason, number of reasons for that. Maybe some of that's going to show up in the logs. Maybe it isn't. And I still think that ends up being an area that if you're when you're initially deploying services, if you have a problem with it, Fargate can be a little frustrating. Although they just released in March, it's still limited. It's a limited release, but ECS Exec, which allows you to exec into EC2 or Fargate-based containers. Mm-hmm. I haven't tried it yet, but I like that because that that could really help as sort of a troubleshooting tool. Not not to go in there and change your immutable infrastructure. That's not the point. Right. The, the point from my perspective would be to really troubleshoot and figure out what's going on if there is an issue with the deployment. Yeah, we went through a little bit of that when we did, when I I deployed our first container. Well, no, I deployed our second container service. The first one was a. Uh, an API for a experiment. And then we migrated another service in there. And then, so third, sorry, I did the third service and it was sort of unique in what it was in that we were replacing something that's the Nginx reverse proxy that sat on two EC2 services that for whatever reason seemed to have some issues and would go down and required, right, constantly weekly reboots and was just sort of like an operational nightmare moved it into ECS Fargate as well for basically cost and size and scalability benefits, as well as, you know, adding in some of the health check opportunities and things like that so that we could hopefully have it stop doing these issues. One day we can talk about what that actually was. It was a DNS problem with ALBs changing their IP addresses um, and how Nginx caches DNS, but that's, we figured that out way later. Uh, <laughs> not important. Um but yeah, it would get into that cycle where it would start spinning up new ones. And then we, you know, I'd go and look at the logs and be like, wait, why the heck is this spinning up a whole bunch of new ones over and over again? What the heck is going on? And- That's one of the things I, I wish they would dial in with ECS. And they do have circuit breakers now, which don't know if they 
work in every situation. They're a little funky, but to be able to quickly get that feedback right now, it's a little challenging to kind of get that feedback into uh, some sort of, you know, monitoring channel. You can do it, vent bridge and whatnot, but it, yeah. it's definitely not ideal. So hopefully they'll, they'll dial that in because that can be a little frustrating. Yeah. It's also hard to figure out what the threshold is there because sometimes it's, it needs to be replaced. I don't want to know every time it doesn't necessarily, if that's the correct behavior that it should be doing it's, but if it's done it 15 times in five minutes, maybe I want to know, or I don't know, whatever that threshold may or may not be, but yeah. dialing some of that stuff in is difficult. Good alarms are always hard to dial. Alerting is all, all about the threshold, right? <laughs> Absolutely. What's normal for you? What, when do you care? The, the EC2 Fargate thing, I, I do think that's another area also where the gap is narrowing. They, they've, they've come mm-hmm. a long way with Fargate. They're putting a lot of effort into it. You know, you could do EFS on Fargate. There's just about every, you could do almost almost everything on Fargate right now. The reason I run EC2s, there's sort of two dimensions to that. One is, one is where cost may be a factor. So Fargate's great for scheduled tasks and short running workloads. Uh, when you're running a lot of containers all the time, you you can't bin pack Fargate the way you can with an EC2. So you end up just spending more for any particular workload. So that, you know, depending on the particular situation, that's something to think about. The other thing is sort of older, this goes back to sort of older code bases where Fargate might not be fully ready, although there's there's fewer and fewer places where I'm needing to, to worry about this, but if they are older systems that probably shouldn't even be running in terms of the, you know what they're running on, that's where I, I stick to EC2 as well. But overall, hopefully the price will continue to drop on Fargate. And when you start doing smarter savings plans, you can you know do compute-based savings plans. You can sort of minimize some of those cost differentials as well. Yeah, and for us, we were we definitely had some overpowered EC2 instances sitting out there for a while. That moving into my like Fargate actually saved us a bunch of money. But these were traditional server roles versus EC2 Fargate or EC2 uh, container uh, ECS. Yeah. Right, right. No, of course. Yeah, yeah. Going from straight up EC2, but even even with the EC2 based ECS before the ability before capacity providers, it wouldn't be unusual to over over provision you know, cluster ECS clusters, because you just wanted to make sure to have some, some run room there, but. Yeah. And I I do like the Fargate model, even though the price per compute is a little bit higher, but you only really pay for the compute you use is certainly enticing for somebody. It is nice. But of course, if you're, unless you run into some memory issues, the memory issues can be a little, little bit of a. I haven't run into any yet. So don't jinx me. (laughs) I will not jinx you. Talk about setting up container pipelines especially like so there's there's the there's sort of the worker loads on ecs and then there's maybe more the web facing systems that might need a load balancer so talk a little bit about that yeah most of ours at this point is going to be web facing so we have load balancers attached to them we need to level up our ourselves in this way right now we're running code pipelines uh code build to code pipelines for a lot of those and we're just sort of letting the CloudFormation task definition updates basically manage that, right? So it spins in new ones for you, rotates out the old ones, and it just kind of works. We have the load balancers that it builds then, right, attached in the same sort of CloudFormation, and then they set their own DNS after the fact so that if, if the load balancer is replaced, it could go update its 
own a record down the road. Um, so it's all sort of self-contained within that nice little package. Um, we have spent a fair amount of time exploring code deploy, uh, but we, we spent it around some EC2 stuff that we were working around. And we found that how code deploy works for EC2 is very different from how it works for ECS and Fargate especially. And it's much more appealing on the ECS level. So that's sort of our next task is to spend some time with code deploy, getting some more blue green deploys running. Um, right now we just kind of use a dev UAT environment to verify those and then ship them out to prod kind of st- full steam ahead, which is not ideal, f- but it's actually worked fairly well for us. So for now. Well, ultimately if it, if it's not breaking, right, you, you can always create more complexity in your, in your deployment patterns later if needed. Yeah. Um, and because these are leaf nodes for us at the time being or supporting infrastructure, it's not as dramatic or impactful if something were to go sideways. Although I can't think of any instance where we've had anything go really truly sideways outside of me doing something that I knew was going to go sideways, like cutting over some DNS in the middle of it or whatever. So we've been a little bit fortunate in that. And we've been slow in our growing pains somewhat intentionally, right? We don't want to just move over a super important workload without running through some of these paces. So this latest project that we're working on is going to put us through our paces, right? It's going to be a much more foundational piece of some of the stuff that we're building going forward. So we're going to spend the time to do that a little bit more right, a little bit better, uh, and build in some hopefully smarter blue-green style deploys. One of the things I really like about containers, and this goes for serverless as well, but containers is one area where there's a real democratization of DevOps that happens in this space. So in other words, the developers can really own this from start to finish and, and, and build this into their, 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 whatever, their Bitbucket pipelines, their code pipelines. And one of the interesting challenges that I seem to deal with a lot. So I deal with a lot of obviously web facing applications as well. And there's a shared load balancer. And so here you are, you're ready to deploy a new service on, on Docker, but you need to actually make sure that it's registering into a target group under a particular load balancer that might have some listeners and some rules associated with it has right. to go to a certain place. And so what I find is that I, I, I sort of define a lot of infrastructure at AWS as the somewhat static constructs that are sort of further removed from the application and the constructs that are more closely tied to the application. Think about a load balance or any of the networking components that's sort of these fairly static constructs. And so, okay, I'm going to deploy out a new target group and put it into this load balancer. I'm going to create a rule. This is the priority for that rule, right? I'm going to create that over here. And then when it's, but to do, to deploy a service, the shell of a service, you need some sort of service definition. Right. But the service definition, the task definition really should live with the code. It should live as a, effectively as a JSON file, you know, in your code, in your code base as well. So that way, if you need to make a change to an environmental variable or something else, it becomes very easy to do, but it's, it's a chicken and egg problem in that you, I need to deploy this infrastructure with this initial definition, but that's not the definition that ultimately might be deployed or changing over time. So it's an interesting, because everything else gets built, in, built into the pipeline very easily. But I always find there's this. Is, this so you're talking about the case, like if I spin up all the load balancers and target groups and DNS off in this pipeline over here, 
and then you run your ECS and it spins up its own target group and rotates those in. And basically like those target groups you created over there, because you have to create target groups with a load balancer are now worthless and not doing anything. And they just kind of sit out there. Well, it's kind of like the question becomes, where do you, where do you create that? Right. And what does that look like? Yeah. Uh, So yeah, it's, it's a really interesting, I, I deal with this a fair amount where these gray areas of what you can really push into the sort of application-driven pipelines versus the infrastructure pipelines. All is code, right? It's all is code right. either way, but in terms of sort of ownership and manageability of it, it's it's in it's, there's a lot of gray areas there. Yeah, I guess that to me is going to come down to you know we've talked a little bit about culture, some of the culture around that. We have we've done both at our company, and depending on different cases. I personally, for new stuff that's been moved into containers or Lambda or whatever, I really like everything being bundled together, that code and infrastructure and all supporting pieces are in one repo, one definition, however you want to break that up, right? Like, and is self-contained and that it does everything that it needs to do. um, And it's all there. I guess I like the safety of it really is what it comes down Mm -hmm. to is that like, if the load balancer were to change, then we know the next time it runs, it's going to update the load balancer. If somebody accidentally deletes something and who knows what that is, which pipeline do we have to run is we know we just have to run the pipeline and it will, it will do that. I like that. Um, I also like that it, where the code runs matters right to the person who's writing the code and have those things tied together. Now that can also be a double-edged sword, right? You can have some people who can make some messes who don't know what they're doing. Um, as you started down talking about this, I thought you were going to talk about, right, like potentially where a developer is building their own Docker file and, you know, they're starting to, they're pulling some, you know, questionable, yeah, some crazy version of something from who knows where and whatever repo and they're putting change mods 755 on every directory and just like who knows what and uh, trying to just, you know, hammer this stuff through and no best practices or no security and all those kinds of things that like, you open yourself up to that kind of stuff. You need to have checks and balances and, and controls around those sorts of things. Um, well, that's where the, the image scans are a really nice feature, right? It's built, oh, yeah. built into the Elastic Container Repository as long as, as, long as it's a supporting uh, image, uh, base image, which unfortunately I still have to deal with some that are not. That's another story. Right. But those are the kinds of, that's the kind of direction you need to take that, right? To make sure that... If you are democratizing this, that you have some checks and balances in place. Yeah. And I think that everybody is on the same page and everybody is kind of working from the same place. Um, You don't just kind of drop this stuff in somebody's lap that we kind of have some discussions about how you want to attack, you know, this particular problem or this particular container, this particular image. How do we want to build that? How do we want to deploy that? Like, let's have some conversation about let's get make sure that people are on the same page and people understand what's going on and why we want to do one thing one way or one way or the other. And again, with the democratization, I guess, implies that everybody's informed. And that's not to me the hard part is disseminating that information, getting people to care about something um, that they may or may not care about, or that they may or may not be interested and want to spend their time with, right? Like it takes time to tune containers. It takes time to tune some of that stuff and, and get it right and get it solid. And I certainly understand why people don't necessarily want to deal with that. Yeah. It slows you down, doesn't it? And again, we go back to additional cognitive load and, and supporting that. Does the business understand the cost of going to these containers, going to these various microservices? What are the impacts of that? That's one of the actually interesting topics we could probably talk about 
uh, around containerization, right, is, is performance and metrics and impact and, and how that, how do you go about measuring that? How do you go about uh, understanding the cost benefit analysis for your customer of going to a service oriented architecture and what that may or may not mean for them? And what, you know, how does that affect response times? How does that affect the end user experience? How does that time to deploy, time to ship new stuff, time to, you know, move over a service into a new or you know, break something apart into a new service before you can start adding or building new features. So that is delayed deployment. You know, there's lots and lots of cost benefit analysis around all this stuff. And that's something that the business organization, the engineering organization needs to be able to have conversations about that. You know, going to, I'm assuming if you're going into containerization, you're going into some sort of service oriented architecture of some form. So you need to have a, an understanding of what that means, how to manage that. Because again, you're adding complexity to something like say what you will about monoliths and, and, and the challenges that they provide is, you know, they're a little bit more accessible than potentially a large uh, microservice architecture, right? Like you look at AWS's service map that they love to show off. That's just like lines between tiny dots at this point, and you can blow it out into the screen. You can't even understand what's going on. Like it's super complex, right? Like it took a long time and a lot of effort and a lot of, uh, uh, very intelligent engineers to build something like that. And it's much more harder to fully grok that than it would be all in one very nice repo. <laughs> a very yeah, large, that's, nice that's, repo. That's probably more of a, a larger sort of microservices discussion, not just yeah, yeah, for sure. Discussion, uh, because yeah, the the observability and and keeping track of the moving parts and and all the intercommunication is definitely a um a, a whole area in itself that's evolving and creating confusion. But I would say that's been our biggest, actually our biggest struggle with containerization is that part of it, right? Like getting the piece of code up and running in a container is like, it's not particularly hard. Um, getting it to run in a way, right, with all the stuff that's needed to support it has been the hard part. And, and one of the solutions to that is telemetry, right? right. X-ray open telemetry, which is a whole other area of of significant sort of rework and and learning that is probably simply going to become more and more necessary as these as these systems get split up even more and i think about like cloudwatch even like cloudwatch in the past year and a half has leaps and bounds improved yeah um and i think part of it's because again this is where it's just like it's so hard to answer some of these questions. And it's so important and necessary in doing this stuff that, you know, people are going to outside services, looking for other third-party providers or building their own solutions and things like that. AWS has done a nice job in making CloudWatch more available, more accessible, and more powerful. I don't think it's quite there yet personally, in my opinion, but it's really dang close. The funny thing about that, I agree. They're, they're the feature, The features they keep adding are... A really significant, very useful. When early on with CloudWatch for for to try and get some observability on these things, they're all the third-party vendors. And what I liked about the third-party vendors is that they were so simple, and CloudWatch was so confusing. And actually, over time, a lot of these third-party party vendor tools have gotten even more complex and more yeah. feature filled. And CloudWatch has actually cleaned up a little bit, even as they've been adding some features. So I'm pretty excited where it's going because really that that native integration and not yeah. having to push all this data 
out to third parties is pretty convenient. Still could yeah. be a little quicker. It would be nice if it was a little quicker with those logs. You know, just show me the logs a little bit faster, please. Yeah. And for us, CloudWatch is not our main destination. We use it a lot. Uh, it definitely falls into the, like, we like to joke, right? One is greater than zero. Something is better than nothing. Like we'll put it, we'll throw it in a CloudWatch, right? Throw it in a CloudWatch log, throw it in, use CloudWatch metrics. Uh, ideally, we're shipping it off into, you know, we use an Elk stack for that. So we're going to push off into Elk and hopefully have it in a single pane of glass where you can, you know, tie all these things together or whatever. Um, whether or not we stay in Elk or move to CloudWatch or move to, you know, Prometheus or who knows whatever tool down the road, certainly open to a lot of that kind of stuff. But I certainly like the idea of it being in, one area, but right now that's the function that CloudWatch sort of provides for us. Uh, or we'll, you know, write to those logs and then have a, you know, we have a service that reads off the logs and ships them off into another elk for us. So, right. Containers are a great opportunity to move the monolith and to start getting rid of some of that undifferentiated heavy lifting associated with things like EC2 and configuration management of systems and all the associated whether it's security or compliance issues or, yeah. you know, it just makes it much easier. But yeah, we've made sort of like, we could have moved our stuff off of EC2 into containers at this point. But again, we're a 20 year old product. We are through various versions of .NET and we aren't, uh, we're in the process of migrating fully to .NET Core at this point. We're still on old .NET framework on some stuff. This just taking time to move off. We have old libraries, old dependencies that we've needed to move. And we're in that process but we kind of just decided we don't want to deal with windows containers. We don't want to spend the time, energy and effort to spin all those up, but we could have moved it over in that time. We just didn't really see necessarily the full benefit and speed and, and, and growth that could happen from there. Right. Windows containers. Yeah, there's, 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 there's expense of refactoring it to this new mm -hmm. environment versus accepting the technical debt that you have and knowing that things over time or, you know, at some point, things are going to get not refactored, but potentially just rewritten or replaced. Yeah. But I guess in my mind and sort of the discussions and conversations we had around where the containers being lightweight, fast, and, and, you know, much less overhead as we found that windows containers, window Docker images were not necessarily that. And so uh, made sense for us to stay in EC2 for the time being. Uh, we have multiple layers, various EC2 instances for those various layers of our, you know, various tiers uh, and that works really well for us for now. Um, that's not where I want to be. It's not where I want to go, but it makes sense. Well, you're making business decisions that are based on experimenting and, and testing and, and determining what works and what doesn't. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we, you know, we, for every service that we've put out there, we spent the time to load test, to tune, to like understand how to scale it well, how to do those things really, really well. I think that's a really important piece is understanding the containerization side of works on my machine. I got it working. It's contained. It's isolated. I can sh throw that, you know, over the fence and it will make its way to prod. And I know that the environment, everything there is, is that um, scalability and response times and throughput and, and opera. Again, another word I'm blanking on that I can't think of off the top of my head, but along those lines, right. To run that in production is a whole nother thing. And you can, there's tons of great tooling out there and stuff to make, to figure out what those thresholds and what those benchmarks are for individual containerizations. Uh, what I really like about containers is it allows you to really tune that stuff really well, because it's a really focused one little piece of architecture. Really minimizing the scope. Yeah. Excellent. 
Eric, thanks for joining me once again. This yeah. A lot of fun. It's always fun to talk through these ideas. I, I think about a lot of this stuff all day long, but I don't get to talk about it as much. So it's great talking through it with you. Yeah, same. And it's one of those things that I do the same. And uh, I look forward to what people have to say and, and reading more about it and learning more about it. Um, it's I'm a sponge in this category. I've been trying to dive as deep as I can. And I just feel like I have so much more to learn, right? It's a whole nother level of compute and a whole nother level of systems that I feel like some people have a heads up, you know, a head start on me. So playing some catch up. The depth of the cloud. There's something ironic about that, but I, I completely agree. You can go very deep. All right. Thanks for tuning in. You could find us on Twitter at Cloud Coffee Talk. We welcome all your feedback. Be critical, but be kind. Until next time, have fun in the cloud. Thank you.